Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at ju3project.org. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm so excited that you're joining us this week. I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest who's no stranger to the Jude 3 Project. He's been on way back in the day, some years ago when we first started. And then uh, he's been at Courageous and he's back now. So uh, welcome back, uh, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss. <laughs> Lisa Fields, thank you so much for, for having me on the, the podcast today. Thank you for joining us again. I'm so excited to have you. and. The talk about such a, uh, uh, I think, important topic, especially as it relates to Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, but before we get into that, tell our audience a little bit of background about you who may not know you. Sure. Uh, my name is Otis Moss, uh, the, the third, <laughs> obviously named after my father. Uh, my father is a pastor, retired pastor from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, served for about 33 years at the Alabama Institutional Baptist Church. Uh, and my, my, my mother and father were, were part of Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That's actually where they, where they met. My mother uh, was the office manager of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. My father uh, was a lieutenant and was one of the organizers of what was called the Committee for Human Rights, which became the Atlanta sit-in movement, which uh, desegregated Atlanta. And I mentioned that because the idea of social justice, of a deep commitment to community, and culture and Christ uh, is part of my development as as a human being and as as a follower of Christ and and, and as a black man. I uh, went to Morehouse, our college, greatest college on the planet. Uh, you can argue if you want to, uh, just put it in the comments, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but uh, currently I serve at the Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. Uh, Illinois, a church where uh, we're unashamedly black and we're unapologetically Christian and we are committed to uh, being in the heart of the community, uh, ever seeking the community's heart. And, and community development is, is a staple 
of, of our ministry of how do we not create a situation for black people to survive, but how do we create a situation where we thrive? And that's what we're committed to doing on the mm -hmm. South side of Chicago. Yeah. And uh, you all are doing an amazing work. Um, so we're excited that you're here to join us. Um, I wanted you to come on because your article in Ebony some years ago really revolutionized the way I thought about suicide. Um, hearing at the end of it, I grew up in a, a Pentecostal home. So when, when you think about uh, suicide, you kind of only think about it in one way, like a, you know, a unrepentant sin. Um, and so, which is something you touched on in a little bit in the article, not like deeply, but I see you are kind of hitting that kind of that ide ideology that people have kind of thought of. And you were like, as cancer is to the body. I remember that line, uh, mental illness can be to the same way to the brain um, and suicide is can come from that. And I remember reading that. I was like, oh, man, I never thought about it in a way. And it made so much sense to me. And so it, it made a light go on. And so it was so helpful. And so when I thought about talking about this subject, I was like, I thought there was no better person because that was such a helpful piece for me to reframe my thoughts than to bring you on to talk about that. Yeah, that's really so. humbling, uh, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, that article was was transformative for for me to to write and put it in a public space uh, about my sister's struggle with mental health, and to hear you say that um, just really that, that really really moves me. Thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for being so transparent in that article, um, because I know that's. From I, I could tell from reading that that you loved your sister and that her um, the writings that she introduced you to were transformational for you and deeply shaped you. And so that you wanted to show her that she was that mental illness was one one part of her, but she was so much bigger than that. So I would love for you to just tell our audience a little bit about Daphne before we get into um, just uh, her struggles. Thank you. Um, Daphne Rochelle Moss, who's now now an ancestor, uh, was my my big sister, my 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 hero. I mean, I absolutely just uh, loved the ground that she walked on. There was there was nobody quite like her because she took such interest in her little brother. Uh, I was an annoyance. Um, she would take me to Baskin Robbins on Friday night. We'd go to the movies. Uh, part of my love for, you know, for, for movies and other portions of, of pop culture is because of her. Uh, but my sister was, she was, she was brilliant. She really was the, the scholar of our, of our family. She was a poet. Uh, she was, she was a writer. She was a model. Uh, and she was a, a teacher and loved uh, African-American literature and poetry and had a unique way of being able to communicate with with children. And and that was, was my sister. Our rooms are right next to uh, each other. Um, 
So uh, I, I was witness, but could not understand it, but I was witness to uh, her struggles as I could hear some of the sounds of, 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 of her struggling, trying to maintain uh, a semblance of sense of all that was going on in, in her mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I, and I remember the article you saying that your parents thought you were struggling and so it was actually you going to the therapist t- saying that no, my sister is struggling, that she was able to get some start to get some help. That, that's right. So as I mentioned, my sister's room was right next to mine, and mm-hmm. I would wake up in the morning and I, you know, I'd hear her playing her music. She had a great, amazing music collection. That's one of the reasons I I love jazz music to this day and have a deep love for music because the first jazz concert I, I ever went to. My sister took me uh, to see Wynton Marcellus when when I was when I was young, and so I would hear that music in the morning. I was like, "Oh, Daphne's up." Um, I'd hear her snapping her fingers. It, you know, it might be her jazz she's playing. It might be um, some Parliament she's playing. Uh, it, it it might be some Marvin Gaye. She had this really really unique and eclectic collection. Uh, she was a jazz and R and B lover, uh, not hip hop, but she was jazz and R and B. And then there would be mornings when I didn't hear that music. And mm-hmm. I started to catch her having these conversations. And she would always brush it off and she would laugh because she was you know, quite funny. But, uh, and then I would notice that sometimes she would stay in the bed for, for a long period of time, that her moods would switch drastically. But because of her sensibilities and I really think her love for me, she was always trying to put on a good face around her little brother. Uh, and it was probably, I was probably about nine or 10, somewhere in there, about nine or 10. And I started acting out in, in school, uh, kind of getting into trouble, uh, you know, really talking back to, to teachers. And there was just a lot of anger that I was demonstrating uh, at home and and at school, and so my parents, you know, they they got a counselor for for me to to talk with, and the counselor asked me to draw a picture. This kid with some crayons, and I drew a picture, but I drew a picture of my entire family. But the picture that I drew was my sister, and there were these kind of circles, kind of darker circles, kind of put around her. And I also told, um, you know, um, the counselor, I won't, I'm, I'll, I'll talk to you, but at least I need to have my sister come, you know, so it'd be mom, dad, and my sister, even though she's staying outside reading a book or whatever. And the, and my, it takes my father really to tell the story, but he says that the counselor then sat down with um, my parents and he said, it's not your son who uh, really needs to have, we need to have some conversation with, but it's your, your daughter. Um, because I, I asked in one of the sessions, I asked, you know, can my sister come in with me? And that's when a very astute black woman who was a psychologist recognized that my sister was really struggling. 
so as you as you navigated that space because i think a lot of people are um trying to figure out how to navigate relationships with family and friends that are dealing with mental illness what what are some ways that were helpful for you um in navigating that relationship that you share uh or would share with with people navigating relationships um today yeah that's a that's a great question uh i have to really give thanks to my parents um otis and edwin moss they took any type of trepidation shame out of the picture in reference to seeking counseling therapy talking with a psychologist they sat me down before they knew that something was going on with my sister but saying that this is designed you know to to help you we just want someone to talk with you someone a third party there's some things that you may not want to share with us i mean they were just so affirming in the conversation there is in our community for some uh, there's some trepidation in and around talking with a therapist i'm just going to pray it away but we're talking about mm -hmm. mental health and we're talking about mental illness y you would not uh, say to someone if in fact they had cancer or they uh, had covid <laughs> and, and and said just pray it away no we, we we're going to pray and use the skills that god has given to someone who is specialized in working through this illness and and that's their calling their calling is to deal with cancer their calling is to deal with covid they're an epidemiologist and so why wouldn't we also give the respect um and honor to someone who has the skills to understand trauma, to understand um, emotional health, to understand mental health and mental illness. And so I would say to, to any family member, to any person that has someone in their family, that counseling and therapy is the first step. And let me say this, there is a difference between counseling therapy, a psychologist, and a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist mm -hmm. is someone who, who specializes in uh, this idea of brain and uh, development and all of that, but also can prescribe medication. A psychologist is specializing in terms of behavior um, and usually has a doctorate in that area. And a counselor can be someone who is from social work to a licensed therapist and counselor. And there can be short-term counseling, long-term. There can be pastoral counseling, which usually should be short-term. And when I say short-term, a, a good pastor should say, I will spiritually counsel you, but I will recommend and refer you to someone who is an expert. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm gonna pray with you in reference to, to, to COVID and cancer and all of that, but I'm not an expert uh, in reference to communicable diseases. So it would be responsible for me to pass on that information and that person to someone who has been called, called by God to deal with these issues. 
And I believe that mental health needs to be in that category so that we don't push it aside as something that's solely spiritual and see it as something that's physical. There is something happening with the brain, just as if someone had a brain aneurysm or they had a tumor in the brain, you want a brain surgeon. You, you don't want the dentist. <laughs> you don't want a lawyer to come over there. Yeah, bring the lawyer over here. No, 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 the, we don't need a contract. We need a doctor. Uh, so, so those are some of the things that we have to really be honest about, in, 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 especially in the African-American community, um, and know the differences between those, those different areas. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, because I think people think, you know, a counselor is this, all of them are the same thing. And sometimes people get into trouble because they might need a, a medical doctor that focuses on that. And they went to a counselor and it might be a social worker that has the the counseling license and there's a world of parts. I'm not saying that they're not equally, they're helpful in their spaces but you need different things for different, different challenges. Yeah, just to add, you would maybe see a marriage counselor, but your marriage counselor wouldn't have the expertise to be able to make a recommendation around what is going on in terms of their, uh, a young child's brain or to have an MRI to see if there is a chemical imbalance. You know, th those are things that you want to be able to to do. And we, we had to do that with my sister. And we found out, they found out that there was a, there was a chemical imbalance. Her brain was not functioning the way that uh, an average person's brain functions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it, when it comes to grief with suicide, I think there's a, probably a different grief. I know um, some years ago, a family friend who was like a little brother to me took his own life. And I remember, you know, I've been to, I'm a PK. I've been to millions of funerals. I've had family members pass, but it was something different. I remember at the funeral, me and my, and my brothers holding each other, just crying. Um, because it was just a different, it was also because he was so young, early twenties. We had just thought we have Sunday dinners uh, in my family. He had just came over two weeks ago um, for Sunday. So we had just saw him and it was a different kind of grief um, that I felt for suicide. Maybe because I felt like he, he chose that, uh, like it wasn't something chosen for him. Now he hadn't gotten any evaluation for all we know. He was just Fine. He was kind of always a melancholy kind of kid, but he didn't, he didn't, he hadn't, his parents or grandmother said he hadn't been to a therapist or anything. So we didn't have a formal diagnosis. Um, so it was just out the blue. And so it was a different layer of grief. Um, did, did it, that it hit you like that when your sister passed? Uh, without a doubt. Uh, Normal grief, for example, someone uh, dying because of a disease that you are familiar with or is in a car accident or as a result of, of violence, that, that kind of trauma, there is a, a, a way in which we try to compensate to say, well, okay, the car hit them 
And then we begin to make these calculations sometimes about, okay, if this hadn't happened, this person would still be here, so on and so on. Um, mm -hmm. They succumb to, to cancer. Their, their body couldn't function. They couldn't, you know, their, their white blood cells were attacking each other. You know, we, we can understand it. Um, the violence, we, we, in a strange way, we can, it, 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 all of this grief cuts us. Suicide rips something from us in a very different way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it really does. Because you begin to question yourself and you begin to question the reasons why in the person. And then the theological pain that we have placed, unfortunately, and which is, I think the theological aspect is the vi true violence that we do to people. Because, because there is no real layout that, that God said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to love you because you had a disease, so I can't love you anymore. Um, but, but because, especially in the black community, because we've drawn from a particular Catholic theological framework, and then remember now, there was a time where we, we came to grips with, with suicide in a different way, especially during the transatlantic slave trade, that there were multiple people who made choices, not um, because they saw the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade as a descent into hell. And they said, I would rather take, take my own life. And people were doing that in a, in a very, you know, sane and logical and theological way that they were making that, um, that, that piece. The push in the black community comes because property owners didn't want to lose their property. Don't do this because forever you will be cast aside by God. In other words, let me give you a piece of theology that allows me to profit off of you. Mm. So no matter how much hell I give you, no matter how far I'm outside of, of God's will, no matter all the trauma that I put on you, don't, don't be like M Margaret Garner, the story of Margaret Garner, which Toni Morrison used as a um, inspiration for the book Beloved. It's a true story of a woman who escaped to freedom. And there was a, a issue of suicide about, you know, we, there's no way that we are going back and I'm going to have my child go back, uh, to, to be in a situation that she clearly said has nothing to do with the will of God and whatsoever. Uh, so that's just a little bit of background in, in, in reference to that, but we, you know, it's, it's a different kind of grief. It's a different kind of grief. And for me, um, I didn't deal with it. I just buried it. So mm -hmm. my sister committed suicide. Uh, she took her life about four days before I was to be married. So my family, um, and I thank, thank God for my mom and my dad. They, they I remember them sitting us down and said, now, because I was saying, we're going to postpone the wedding. We're going to postpone everything. They're like, no, we're going to have the wedding and come to Cleveland. We'll have the home going, uh, but we're not going to let it disrupt uh, what, what you all have been planning. And 
I buried it. You know, the, the best thing to do would have been if we gotten some therapy and, 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 uh, you know, seen a, uh, a psychologist. We didn't do that. I was like, okay, we're just going to keep moving on. Uh, let's not talk about it. I couldn't even talk about it. I couldn't even use the words that my sister took her life. I couldn't use the word suicide. People ask me, my sister, I says, uh, she had a terminal illness. <laughs> I mean, that was the only thing I could think of coming up with because I had shame around that. And it, it affected um, our marriage because I was, you know, I, I would just get, you know, very agitated about things um, and certain things I didn't, you know, didn't, didn't deal with very well, uh, especially when it came to death uh, around, around people, especially when they were younger. Um, and, and so it was, it was, it was challenging. It was challenging, but you know, coming into the final, finally coming into the light was, was one of the most freeing moments of, of my life of, of being able to tell her story and then realizing how she had blessed me. So that's, that's extremely, extremely, um, I think helpful to know, like how burying stuff affects and impacts us. Last week, we had uh, Pastor John O from Atlanta on talking about his brother's, the loss of his brother, um, Sam. And he talked about how uh, it was on the heels of him starting his new church. So he's been preparing for this church plant, excited. And a week before the church plant, his brother just dies. Um, unexpected, healthy, just they can't explain it just gone and he just he said he he lost it when they told him and it was just so overwhelming and it's fundamentally changed him as a person and it made him kind of skeptical as it relates to life because he was kind of always a happy-go-lucky kind of guy um raised in a two-parent home kind of had a easy he felt life um, everything kind of went his way. And then when his brother was taken, it was just like, this is not supposed to happen. I did everything right in my life, you know? Um, and so it came out of left field and he really struggled. And because it came um, on the wings of something that was so exciting, it's like life becomes so bittersweet um, that when you have joys, you look like, where's the next sh shooter drop? Um is it, is it always going to be like this bitter with the sweet? Uh, is there ever going to be just a joyous time that you don't have to look for pain that's like lurking coming around the corner? Did you have that that came with with your your sister's death and then marriage coming? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a bitter with with the sweet, without a doubt. The, the marriage celebrony was, it was a wonderful celebration and then hopping on a plane and then doing my, my sister's home going was, was a challenge in itself. But over time, it, it helped me spiritually and emotionally and, and, and physically when I finally confronted it and realizing that it is not possible to live without the echo of the blues along with the gospel. Mm. Uh, so you, you can't understand a resurrection unless you know the, the pain of Calvary. Or within the African-American tradition, 
Gospel music is built on the chords of the blues. So there's no way you can sing gospel unless you know the blues. And that is the rooting of, of how life operates. My father said something still resonates uh, with me to, to this day when he said, talked about son, he said, um, there are going to be mountain moments in your life. Um, and you're going to see grand vistas. You're going to be able to see far and it's, it's a beautiful moment, but mountains were never designed for you to travel upon. You travel in the valley. So you've got to come down from every mountain and you've got to learn how to walk in the valley, but you'll get to another mountain eventually. The question is, how do you walk through the valley is the question. Do you walk with a sense of foreboding or do you walk still holding the vision that you had on the mountain, which will get you to your next mountaintop? And that was just some great piece of advice uh, because my father also is someone who has had extraordinary tragedy in his life. And so this was a, 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 exceptionally painful, but at the same time watching him deal with it. So as a young child, his mother dies as a result of medical apartheid. We're not going to mm. deal with nor accept a black woman uh, into this medical establishment, even if it will save her life. His father dies when he's 16, his father makes a choice to, to raise five children alone, not getting remarried, uh, who's a sharecropper, dies when he's 16, is hit by a drunk driver several months as he's a, attempting to cast you know, his vote in a Georgia election in, in 1951. Then his first wife, who was my sister's mother, uh, she dies giving childbirth, making my father a single father, uh, similar to his father. Um, and then uh, a few years later, he, he, he meets uh, my mother and they get married and whatnot. Uh, then before, um, uh, then after, then my sister passes uh, as a result of suicide. And then my brother's uh, oldest son is shot and killed. And my father is, he, he recounts, I, I've been at all of those home goings. I've been all those places. And he says, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. It's like, my gosh, mm. you know, I mean, you, you've experienced all of that tragedy. And he says, Otis, I've been to the mountaintop and I've walked through the valleys. And, and the marriage was a mountaintop experience to watch you and Monica get married. I had to walk to the valley and bury my, my daughter. But then, you know, you, you blessed us with some grandchildren, another mountaintop. You know, it's just, it, he just, just a very, very different way of looking uh, at the world. Yeah, and I think that's so helpful because, you know, we live in a day, you, I, I was reading the stats, Gen Z is one of the most depressed generations. Um, and su the suicide rates amongst Gen Z, Gen Z is is higher, um, and I know that's because social media uh, has a tremendous impact on that. It's it seems to it 
some older people would say, well, we went through all this. Uh, you should be more resilient. <laughs> um, if we were able to go through that, what, what, how do you think we should be thinking about that? Uh, because, you know, you talked about the testimony of your father. Um, many in Gen Z haven't been in that, in anything close to that, but it seems like, like they're just giving up. How do you think we minister to them who don't seem to have that kind of like keep going um, mentality that maybe our forefathers had? That's a wonderful question. And foremothers. Yes, Lisa. Um, building communities of resistance is a practice. Resilience and resistance is a practice. Our ancestors and our grandparents had villages of resilience around them. Uh, we don't have that same type of village and we have to, we have to build it. So I'll give an example of, of, of a uh, resilience activity. And one resilient activity was like being in the kitchen. And when someone was going through a moment of deep depression, because they couldn't afford, didn't even know what a psychologist was, let alone, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, say, hey, you need to go see somebody. You're in a kitchen with your elders and they are raising questions about what you're going through and saying, by the way, you know, hand me that flower over there. Um, how are you and so-and-so doing? What's going on? Let me tell you. And, and then they would share stories. Uh, then they pray with you and they would let you know that I'm here for you. And then they would begin to share the cloth that you're made from. Let me tell you, and I shared the story of my father because he was essentially by sharing those stories, he's saying, Otis, let me tell you the cloth that you're made from. Let, let me share with you the experiences, not to say that you just need to get over it. Let me share with you that. And he said this, and it was this thing rocked my world. He said, Otis, you're going to find out when you're going through grief that you're going to hit rock bottom, but you will find out that the bottom's solid. And when you hit bottom, that's the moment that you're going to really learn how to pray differently. And, and so sharing those stories, creating those communities of resilience, we don't have communities of resilience. We have um, people at a distance. And these communities many times have to be created physically in spaces with people. So you can see someone's eyes, hear their voice, feel their hug, the smells of the food created, the music uh, that is played, the prayers uh, that are offered, the comfort of a room that someone creates and curates because there's a unique space and smell. You go to your grandmother's house, you know how it smells. You know, it's got a certain smell to it. And it's just like you feel comfortable if you have that kind of grandmother. Those physical spaces have been cut off from a community. Gen Z has to get on a plane to see certain people, not walk down the street. And we have cut ourselves off in cul-de-sac communities and so that we've got to rebuild that. And that's one of the things that the church can do that really a lot of other spaces just don't have the ability to do it. Where you can have multiple generations, people with extraordinary experiences who can help share with you practices of resilience. I'll name two, two elders 
uh, who taught us practices of resilience. There's a woman in Cleveland uh, who I call my 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 aunt, uh, Aunt Clary. She's from Mississippi. She can cook unlike anybody. She's one of the people that on Sunday, no matter if it was two people or 200 people, she's going to cook like there's 200 people uh, <laughs> on Sunday. And part of her ministry was she understood the um, the effect that food has on behavior. So there are certain foods that she would only cook for celebration. And there's only certain foods that she would only cook for grief. And there were certain foods she would mm. cook when someone was not feeling well. I mean, that that's that's ancient stuff <laughs> right there. That's, that's, that, that, that's some ancient good stuff right there. And we, we're losing those things. You, you can't get the same thing going to the restaurant. The, the restaurant doesn't love you. They just want your money. <laughs> you know? But your Aunt Clarice knows that, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You're not getting the peach cobbler. You know, what we got to do right now, there's a soup that I make. <laughs> That's when you smell it, it's going to change the way you feel. And then there was another elder um, called a Grandma Williams, uh, who was like my grandmother. And she knew how to make these rolls. But, you know, she ain't make the rolls just be making the rolls, <laughs> you know, when someone was going through something, these are from scratch rolls. You know what I mean? You know, straight up scratch. So building the, we got to work on building the communities of resilience. And I think there's a real connection between um, food, sound, along with music and the physical space that people are in. And black people understood that. That's why we were at church all the time. How the heck you think we could survive and thrive. We had to be together and we pass these things down. You know, we, we cook in here and we're building here. We're planning here. We created a, a, a school here. We started a business over here. Where? All up in the church because we were passing down practices of resilience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. And, you know, I think one of the challenges for us is we do church sometimes in a very fragmented way now where you go to the church of your generation. So it's all young people, but then you lose the wisdom of the your the seasoned saints. So I remember talking at a women's conference and the the younger women were saying, all right, we left the older churches, created new church plants, hip church plants, but now we have nobody to help us, give us advice on how to raise our children because we're all the same age. <laughs> and I I was thinking like, oh man, like you don't think about that. You're looking like, oh, it's cool to worship with people that's my age. It, it seems more convenient, but then you so much that you don't realize that you lose. And that generational component is so important. I think about like one of my mentors, Dr. Cynthia James, I could be going through something crazy in ministry and I tell her and she's like, oh, I've been through that. And she she tells me her story and it helps me keep going. And you just really need that wisdom to keep going um, when you feel like your world is falling apart because they're like, my world fell apart 15 million times. I'm still going. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We, we have Mary churches when we should have Mary and Elizabeth churches. So, so Mary goes and has conversation with Elizabeth, 
you know, you, you've been through this before, right? <laughs> you know what these pains are going on in my, in my belly right now. Um, there has to be a Mary and Elizabeth connection because there is, especially in our community, there's an oral tradition that if you are not around your elders, you will never receive. And the African proverb speaks about the fact that every time an elder dies, we lose a library. And I believe that it's, that's very true. And we have to create ministry that's intergenerational because there's just certain things that are not written down that allow us for that, that put us in the position of resilience, help us around resistance, um, that curate within our spirit practices of, of liberation and deepen our prayer life in a very dramatic way. You know, senior season saints, they don't pray the same way. They, they, don't. <laughs> they don't. They, they don't. They, 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 they ain't nobody talking about, let me pray and get a house. No, they ain't praying for the house and the car. They praying differently. They pray with power and sometimes they pray silently. You know, they, they pray continuously. And it's a different level. There's a depth. There's, there's a depth to it. And learning those practices is part of curating practices of resilience and communities of resilience. Well, thank you, Dr. Moss. This has been a rich time. I've enjoyed it. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, how can people get in touch with you on social media? Sure. You can reach me on Twitter at OM3, on Instagram at Otis Moss, III, uh, that's Otis Moss III. Uh, or on Facebook, you can you can reach out to me in in, in that manner, um, or you can just check us out on our website at Trinity United Church of of Christ. And if you're ever in the Chicago area, just just reach out to us. If you're looking for a space or someone that you want to just bounce off ideas about being unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian, hey, I'm your brother. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for watching another episode of the G3 Project Podcast. You can catch all our episodes on our website at g3project.org. You can donate and become a monthly partner at g3project.org. Remember, we have our curriculums, uh, Courageous Conversations and Through Eyes of Color. You can get those on our website. Remember, here at the G3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, grace and peace. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jew3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. 
So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to jew3project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.